0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group. This podcast is my ode to staffers at all levels, those who work in government and politics all across the country, um, because I find I was a staffer, and I find the job fascinating. I love hearing about how people got into the job, what they learned from the job, and what they have taken from the job, in addition to friends and memories but what skills do they take and apply uh, in their jobs today? I am excited to say that my guest today is Simone Sanders. Simone started uh, working in politics early on, uh, even as a, as a high school uh, student. She went through a phase of what she calls a thousand and one internships. And she began uh, in politics proper uh, by being a consultant in Nebraska. She worked on gubernatorial campaigns, mayoral campaigns, statehouse campaigns in 2015 Simone became Bernie Sanders' uh, national press secretary in his bid for president in 2016. Uh, That made her the youngest presidential press secretary on record at age 25. In early 2019, she joined the Joe Biden for president campaign and today is uh, one of the vice president's top advisors. We spoke with Simone on August 5th, remotely, of course, given the circumstances. Um, And I'm pleased to say, Simone, welcome to Staffer.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: I, I normally start off asking my guests about their roots, and I am going to get to that. But you've made time for us this morning, and, and you're a key advisor to a presidential candidate. I think by my reckoning today is 89 days from the election. Can you give our listeners a glimpse into your day? Like, What has it been like already this morning, and what does it look like ahead?
1: Um. <laughs> it looks like I am I am counting the days down. You know, I have I have never been on the campaign trail this long. Usually, I mean, usually you I when I worked for Senator Sanders in 2016, I think I I joined in June, July, or August of that year and then I was on the trail for almost a year and then I left the campaign in June of 2016. But I've been on the campaign trail since April of 2019. <laughs> so just to wow. give some context, um, but, you know, it's it's different in COVID, right? Because I used to travel um, with the vice president. I was part of our traveling team, so I would spend most of my time on the road. But nowadays it consists of like me waking up, rolling over, checking my emails, checking Twitter, sending a bunch of different notes. I am knee deep in a number of different spreadsheets for some of these rollouts that we have planned. And then I have a a, a standing eight thirty AM call. I have a a hold for a nine AM call regularly. And then more emails and more emails. So I've been waking up now between like six and six forty five ish, seven some days. But like there I've also pulled all nighters over the last couple of days. So last night I got about an hour of sleep because oof. I was knee deep in this spreadsheet.
0: (laughs) Well, so being a a staffer on a presidential campaign is a a unique form of being a staffer. It requires a lot of different characteristics. Some of them you've just talked about, physical stamina, organization, sharp thinking, problem solving, passion for the cause. All of these have to be done on little sleep. What was it about growing up in your household in omaha that you think gave you some of these characteristics
1: <laughs> you know i'm I'm sure i think i just i don't think i garnered any of these characteristics like growing up right like i'm a middle child um so maybe i i, I learned how to how to be nimble as the middle child i don't know maybe that's it but i really just think um the campaign trail is just it's just a, it's just a different space. And I think I have worked for obviously, that's how I know, how I know my my GSG friends, I have worked at um, a a super PAC, I've worked at C4 situations, I've worked at advocacy organizations, but I think the thing about a campaign is it is so fast, fast paced. And what we do in two weeks, it takes most people in um, non campaign environments, like three to four months. So, I just really think that um, maybe I've just, I've, I, I thrive in high pressure situations where I have to be nimble and there is not a more high pressure situation than a presidential campaign.
0: Yeah. Well, your book, No, You Shut Up is phenomenal. I read it a couple of weeks ago. I really recommend it to staffers, aspiring staffers, People who enjoy politics, people who just want to read about somebody with great advice and insights. And there's a story that I'd I'd like you to tell um, that I really liked. You were involved in Omaha with a group called Girls Incorporated. And I love this story where one year, then Senator Barack Obama comes to Omaha and a friend of yours gets to introduce him. And that role of introducing a prominent speaker is something that you wanted to do. And so you went to the organization's leaders and said hey next year that's an opportunity i'd like uh to have but they didn't tell you yes right away tell us what happened
1: no they matter of fact they didn't not only tell me yes i mean they didn't tell me no but i was definitely told that this was a job for a public for a public speaker and i was not necessarily anyone's first choice because you know growing up i i think it's actually hilarious to a number of people that I grew up with that I am a communications professional. And that at one point in time, people were paying me to uh, give speeches because people used to say, I talk too loud, too fast, and too much. So I've talked like this and I would get really excited. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is what we have to do. And somebody would have to be like, Simone, slow down. (laughs) So when I went to the Girls Inc. officials and told them that I wanted to be the person to introduce former President Clinton, they said, "Mm, so I had to, to, to demonstrate that actually I could do the job. So I took on any additional task I could at the center. Um, I hosted the talent shows. I volunteered, you know, if they needed girls to give presentations to the donors, I volunteered to do that. I really just went out of my way to demonstrate that this is actually a job I could do. Uh, and it's a job I'd like to have. And the, I think the way that I ended up getting, um, you know, the job actually, the the, uh, the opportunity to introduce former President Clinton, there was an opportunity that we need. They needed girls to go and present with a joint presentation with Campfire, and it was during the school day, so I volunteered. I got to leave school, went to go do it. I killed the presentation. Okay, I was funny, a little <laughs> little fifteen year old me. I was hilarious. I was on point. I had my talking points together. And when we get to the center that afternoon, so I go back to school, I go to the Girls Inc. Center after school and there's a note at the front desk saying that Roberta Wilhelm, the executive director, wanted to see me in her office. I run upstairs, I burst into Miss Roberta's office and she says, you are going to be the girl to introduce former President Clinton. And I was like, yes. And then they told me how to write my own speech and I was like, oh my goodness, but I wrote it and it turned out well, I think. President Clinton ended up writing about me in his book, um, giving how each of us can change the world. And it was that exercise for me was really a crash course. It's, It's something I've had to replicate over and over again in my life. And I think it's something all young people, anybody that's ever wanted to do something and someone maybe whoever the proverbial someone is, whoever the proverbial they are, didn't think that they were maybe the best fit for the job. Sometimes you have to show people. What's the saying? I can show you better than I can tell you. Well, I went about the business of showing folks that this was actually a job for me. It was a job I could not only could do, but a job I could excel at. And I learned that lesson at 15, 16 years old, that sometimes you have to go out and demonstrate that this is for you.
0: Well, and this is a thread that is throughout your book in that time and again, you saw something you wanted to do and then said, "Oh, I need to develop a skill to be able to do that, which I will begin working on today." And <laughs> I, right And I think a lot of people, if they're looking at your career, it looks like a rocket ship straight up. And people can see you on TV and read about you in the media and think she must have been born a fully formed professional with all of these, <laughs> you know capabilities. And just Absolutely. real briefly for our listeners, In 2016, at the age of 25, you were the youngest national press secretary for a presidential campaign on record when you started working for the Bernie Sanders campaign. You then became a regular paid commentator on CNN. By 26, you were granted an at-large seat at the DNC. At 28, you had a book deal. And in 19, you joined the the Biden for President campaign as a senior advisor in his inner circle. Um, As I said, people could look at that and think, boy you know she must be really um lucky number one number and or number two she just must be a you know a level of skill that i cannot attain i i loved reading about your skill acquisition um your your dedication to you know to accomplishing your goals and also the fact that you did pay your dues and that's something that people don't really know. So can you talk about your journey from Omaha to Burlington?
1: <laughs> Good old Burlington, Vermont. So look, I think um, it's important for people to know that when I graduated, so while I was in college, I worked for, and I write about this in the book, I worked for my my the mayor at the time, Omaha mayor, Jim Suttle, former mayor. And they tried to recall the mayor while I was working for him. So I went to volunteer on the effort, on the mayor's effort to beat the recall, his campaign. And that's where I met these gentlemen um, who who owned African-American folks, who owned a a black owned firm out of Tennessee. It was a political consulting firm. And so they, you know, Mayor Suttle's team had hired this consulting firm to organize North and South Omaha to really turn out the vote. North and South Omaha, the predominantly African-American and Latino parts of the city, respectively. So in working with them, this is when I figured out like, oh, I think I really like this politics thing. So they let me continue to work with them throughout college. So I had all kinds of internships, all kinds of different jobs, but I continued to work with this firm. And that's where I got a lot of my foundational experience, political experience. You know, working with this firm is how I first learned judges were elected in some places. I worked on uh, other mayoral races. I worked on state legislative races in Virginia. I worked on, we um, helped elect the, the first African American um, and youngest at that time elected official from uh, District 25, the House of District 25, um, House of Delegates District 25 in Virginia, Stafford County used to be a very red place. Now it's changing in Virginia. I worked. I did work on reservations. I went with them and took notes when they did candidate consultations with people who were thinking about running for office, whether it was county commissioner, mayor or you know a, a general assembly state legislative race. So I got a lot of experience um, doing that. I did copywriting, all those kinds of things. When I graduated, I worked as a community organizer and communications manager for a nonprofit in the city of Omaha, because it was cool post-Obama to be a community organizer. Uh, but I really wanted to go work in politics. So I ended up going to work on um, Chuck Hasselbrook's gubernatorial campaign. Chuck Hasselbrook was a Democratic candidate for governor in Nebraska in 2014. Okay, 2014 was not a good year for Democrats,
0: okay? <laughs> I remember. Does
1: anybody remember the mentor? Okay, does <laughs> anybody remember? Because I did. You couldn't utter the words healthcare. You couldn't utter the words Obama. It was a situation. So, needless to say, we did not win, okay? But I was the... I started off as the communications assistant, and I when they hired me, they were like, I said I wanted to be the deputy campaign manager, and they said, mm, the deputy communications manager. And they said, well, communications director, they said, well, we have a comms assistant role. I said, well, give me two months. And if I've proven myself, I would like the deputy communications director role. Oh, pardon me, look, all my, all my meetings. I would like my, a deputy communications director role. And lo and behold, uh, within, the next two, within two months of me joining the campaign, I ended up as the deputy communications director. And I think that came about because I volunteered to do things. So I volunteered to run our letters to the editor campaign. And in Nebraska, there are 93 counties. Okay, so we did letters to the editor in all of the 93 counties. It's very important, some of these weeklies are sitting on the table in barbershops and beauty shops and um, diners for like days. And that's what the folks in the community are reading. So I ran that program. I started the blog on our website, but I also volunteered to drive the candidate. And from one side of Nebraska to the other side of Nebraska, it's an eight hour drive, okay? And I've done that drive, me and Chuck Hasselbrook, more times than I would like to remember. And that is where we have conversations. I would prep him. That That's really how I got my foundational experience and kind of working directly with a candidate. And I volunteered to drive because if I'm in the car, then I get to hear and see things that I otherwise wouldn't get to see if I'm not in the car. So it was, you know, so that's what I did. So I did that for a little while. We lost, I moved to Washington, DC. I worked for a consumer advocacy think tank Um, in the global trade section division. So we did progressive trade policy. um, And that was, I knew nothing about trade policy, but I knew it was a communications job in DC and I wanted to live in DC. So I learned a lot about progressive trade policy. That's where I met. um, That's where I first learned about Senator Sanders. Um, I did press conferences, I did all kinds of things. But after doing that job for maybe about six months, I decided that I knew I didn't wanna work in, political adjacent, like a political adjacent world. Like I wanted to be able to say the words Democrats and Republicans and independent. I wanted to work in the thick of politics, not adjacent to politics. And a lot of times this advocacy work is adjacent to, because you are building lots of different coalitions. So I started going on interviews. I went on like 27 interviews. Nobody hired me. (laughs) I interviewed everywhere, okay? Everywhere. I went through eight rounds of interviews at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And they did not hire me. So much so that um, the last time I went in for an interview, the, the gentleman at the front, the, the security at the front desk at the, at the building, because, you know, the DNC, all the committees are in the same building. They said, baby, do you work here yet? I said, no, sir, but like maybe after today. And on my last interview, they told me I was very engaging every time I came in, but they're just going to promote somebody internally. Okay, well, why was I up in here for eight different times? And I'll tell you that you know, maybe like after the tenth interview I went on, I was kind of like, "Well, maybe this isn't for me, but the thing that kept me going was I moved to d c to do politics, and so I knew I could always go back home, right like there was you know there was i had a i i had there were a world of things that I was involved in back in Omaha, but I moved here to do politics, and so I at least have to try my hardest to do politics. if I go home to for me, that was like I failed, and i needed to I needed to know that i gave it a hundred and ten percent each and every time before I went home. A couple of days after my 27th interview, I get a call from Jeff Weaver. Bernie Sanders, then campaign manager. He says they need some help. I was like, who is this? <laughs> Jeff and I end up meeting. We sit down and he's just, you know, he says he read my resume. He thinks I could be a great fit for the team. And so then I need to talk to the communications director. A couple of weeks go by. I go and I meet with the communications director. He's got These phones on the table—they're ringing. He's like, "We just need help," and I start talking to him about messaging and you know what I've read up on the senator. And he says, "Well, you sound like you'd be really good talking about this on the radio." And I said, "Or to actual reporters or on television, okay? All of these things are on the table." That meeting happens; it goes well. I don't hear anything after that meeting. Netroots Nation happens, and this was 2015. So, folks, remember that was the Netroots Nation, where um, a Netroots Nation is a progressive conference um, that happens every year in different cities. And that was the year that Senator Sanders attended and Black Lives Matter activists interrupted him, um, his appearance. That was the first like big interruption that he had from activists. And so that happened. And I'm like, oh, well, I haven't heard from them. Maybe I don't want to work there anyway. This seems interesting. Weeks after that, I get another phone call on my cell phone. It is someone from Senator Sanders office saying he'd like to meet me. And I, being that little young millennial who has been on, at that point, 28, 29, yeah, 28 interviews, um, or 29, actually, I'm like, well, you know, I'm av- I'm only available until 4 p.m. today, and then I'm not available again until after 7.30, 7.45, and I understand the senator is busy, but, you know, I'll catch him next time. And it was 2.30, and so the woman is like, are you flexible? And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> do not do that. Okay, if a sitting United States senator that also happens to be running for president calls you and asks, "Are you available?" You are freaking available, right? <laughs> but you know, I ended up, I ended up making it. Okay, they 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 made the senator available, and I was, I became available. I go and I sit down with him for about an hour, and we have a very wide ranging conversation. We get into an argument, okay, about <laughs> about um, the economy and like this moment um cuz you know 2015 there was a moment that was happening it was the rise of these these activists for the first time i really think that people forget, like now we have a mainstream conversation about activists and um particularly the the activists that are associated with the black lives matter movement but 2015 was the time where they really commanded space in the political arena to 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 like they they kicked the doors open and part of kicking the doors open was this disruption that they were doing but they were really just disrupting burning and it was really just like pissing him off Um, but people disrupt because they want attention. And so he and I had a conversation about that and about the economy. I ended up telling him a story. And at the end of our conversation, we reconciled. So our argument, um, we put to the back burner. And he says, I think I like you. I'm like, I think I like you. He's like, I think I want you to work here. I was like, I think I want to work here too now. And then Bernie Sanders asked me something no one else ever asked in all of the interviews that I ever did. He said, well, do you have an idea of what you'd like to do? Well, yes, Senator Sanders, I do. I would like to be the national press secretary. I want to be your on-the-record spokesperson. I want to have a hand in the messaging strategy, just like we discussed here. And I want to do cable television. And Bernie Sanders just looked at me. He kind of cocked his head to the side. He said, uh, have you ever done cable television before? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, That's pretty sir. pretty good. Yeah, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with Bernie Sanders. I, got his, <laughs> I have his accent down really well. And I tell him, no, sir, but I think I'd be very good at it and he laughs and he's like someone will be in touch and you know i'm shooting all my shots this day so i'm like well sir before i go do i talk coins with you because you know economic inequality and at that point he is he is just like toppling over just hilarious and he's like someone will call you and that was a thursday tuesday rolled around someone called me jeff weaver and he started talking about a phone and a laptop and he said the senator really liked me and i said well jeff hold on what is my job title and he said national press secretary and i was like oh
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah.
1: You John De La Volpe, it. who yeah, I did it. John Delavolpe, who um, is Harvard's like director of polling. I met him when I um, was a fellow at Harvard. I told this story to John when I was uh when I was there for my fellowship, teaching my my class and my study group, and and I tell the class the story, and John is like, "This is the most millennial story I've ever heard," and I'm like, "Yes, John, this is this is how it works for the young people." But look, I'll just say this. I think that, um, no, everyone is not sitting in front of a sitting United States senator that also happens to be running for president, right? But I think we all are presented with a moment, particularly for um, younger folks in politics. We are all presented with an opportunity or a moment um, where we have to be, we we can be vocal about what it is that we want, or we can demur and, you know, just 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 take what's given to us. And I think when you are presented with an opportunity, you have to be ready to jump at the opportunity. And I really believe that we should ask for what it is exactly that we want, not for the thing right up under what we want because we don't think somebody's gonna give us what we want. Let them tell you no. So I asked to be the national press secretary. Did I think they were gonna give me that job? I did not. Well, I wasn't sure actually at that point, but I, I didn't know. But I asked because that's not only what I wanted, but it's what I had worked for and it is a job I knew that I could do. It's a job I'd never done before. Okay, but I knew I had the skill set. I knew I knew how to pitch. I knew how to write a press release. I know how to put together a database of reporters and call them up. So, I asked for what it is that I both wanted but what I knew that I had worked for and a job that I knew I could do.
0: Yeah. And I got it. Well, and uh, you got it and you nailed it and then uh, and obviously you've you've made it to another presidential campaign. Again in in really rarefied air and I I just want to emphasize that. I mean, you are in an inner circle. Um which over you know even today despite progress let's be honest you're operating in a world that is you know has a lot of white guys in it uh, historically and and still today um you know there aren't many people um who are who are doing that and i'm i'm curious if you can sort of share with our listeners how do you make sure your views are heard and that your perspective is taken into account.
1: So I, I will say so there's two parts to that. So the first part is um, who the principal is, whether the principal is a, is a candidate or a member of Congress or you know an executive. like who the principal is and what they believe and and, and, and how they like to receive feedback and, uh, and what they think is important matters a whole lot here so joe biden i am you know people say oh you've made it into the inner circle look my views are, are valued because joe biden values me and i think this is I, I don't think the vice president gets enough credit like he he has look i think there's a it's important to have people around you that have known you for a really long time you know so like mike d and c rachetti um, who have known the vice president for years anita dunn who has known him for years like it is very important that um they are there. To you know, to check the you know the Simone's and the Kate and the Kate Bettingfield, even though Kate has worked for the vice president on and off for um ten years at this point or longer, um to check us because they maybe have some institutional knowledge we don't have. But the vice president is very intent on surrounding himself with people that have a a, a diverse viewpoint. Um, he has a lot of women in his inner circle, um, a lot of women that are in leadership roles in his campaign, and I think it's a testament to him because he knows um. You know, he, he wants a diversity of thought. Joe, Joe Biden, anybody that's ever sat down and had a conversation with Joe Biden knows that he likes to discuss. One can argue, even argue debate. OK, he he this is just what he does. He's a he's an intellectual. He's a thinker. Um, he's actually a policy wonk. And, you know, that that's not something people would think right off the bat, but that's absolutely who he is. And so um, because he values my voice and values me, my voice is valued in the circle. And I think it's just really important um, when, when when, we're talking about, oh, are there enough women in the room? Are there enough people of color in the room? Are there young people in the room? Well, sometimes they're in the room, but their voice and their perspective and who they are is not valued. Well, why? Because the powers that be, or the ultimate power that be the principal in, in this case does not value them. But Joe Biden values our voices. And so that is how I have been able to Um, you know, how did you make it into the inner circle? Well, I mean, I just, you know, me and Joe Biden sat down, had a conversation and I believed in what he said. I thought he had accurately diagnosed, um, what America was going through before America even knew what they were going through. Well over a year and a half ago, he said, we were in a battle for the soul of the nation, that we need to rebuild the backbone of this country and unite America. Now that's like, well, duh, have you seen what's happening in the world in this country? But a year and a half ago, it wasn't as clear. So. Um, I think the the, the way that I, I I'm I I am heard um is because Joe Biden values my voice, but also my colleagues do, you know. And it's not um I just always tell, especially younger, like oftentimes I would even say still now, like I'm the I'm I'm the youngest person in the room. And for and I'm on a I'm on a presidential campaign for arguably the next president of the United States of America. I hope so. We're gonna do our part. Eighty nine days. But for young people and staffers who are, maybe you're in a, a different capacity, but still oftentimes the youngest person in the room, what is, what I found is most important, because I've always been the youngest person in the room since before I was. I worked for Senator Sanders, you have to have data to back up what you're saying. And so I have gotten very um, adept in just not making my thoughts and feelings known, which everyone knows I'll do. I'll say, well, I feel like X, Y, and Z, but I have points to back up oh, why I feel that way. And, what i i i learned that that is respected if i can back up what i'm with what i'm saying with data points um with a news article or with the pew center research or with this or with that my perspective um now it's just not the perspective of the young person in the room and my lived experience but it's the perspective of the young person with the lived experience also with the data and i had just gotten the habit of doing that since you know definitely it i I learned that lesson in a hard and fast way when i work for senator sanders so that is how i approach the conversations that i have with my colleagues and i know that i am at the table because i have a very particular perspective and i'm going to say things someone else won't same thing anita dunn is at the table because anita has a very particular perspective uh and she will think of things and say things that i won't think of Um, but i know that my perspective is valued and so i need i make sure i do my due diligence to you know, chime in and speak up. And I'll, I will say, um, you know, all the time, I don't get my way, right? Sometimes I'll have a perspective and people will be like, mm, okay, but we're gonna go do this. And my favorite thing to say is, I'll say what I have to say. And then I end it with, but I'm happy to be overruled here, <laughs> okay? I just wanna be on record. I'm happy to be overruled, but this is my thought. Overrule yeah. me if you'd like, this is what I think. Um, yeah. And that just, that works well.
0: You know, you've you've talked about uh, the team uh, in the Biden campaign, and you have this passage in your book that I love. You write, at its most basic, power is the ability to influence others, which in turn affects outcomes and events. A person can be powerful, but only because that person stands on the backs of hundreds, thousands, millions of individuals. If people don't work together to create a movement, then we can't forge a different future or course correct when things go off the rails. And that is such a perfect distillation of the purpose of teamwork that is required in campaigns. You mentioned some people at the very top, but of course, I am sure you are interviewing, hiring, working with teammates at all levels on the campaign. When you're doing that, what do you look for in a fellow staffer?
1: I think I look for, um, I look for someone that, uh, is quick. So if I send you an email and I'm like, hey, I need this ASAP, and then you respond 45 minutes later, you obviously don't know what ASAP So <laughs> I look for, you know, so I look, okay, so I probably won't email you the next time I need something ASAP. But I look for people who are quick, um, but people who want to have fun at work, right? Like we are, I don't sign up to, I don't go to work every day to be unhappy. So there are going to be tough moments. Obviously, we are now doing this in the midst of a global pandemic where we are all at home and we're not um on the trail or in the office with one another as we as as we were before, you know, the second week of March. So it's 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 different. But I I want to work with people that are fun, that are nice not necessarily nice, but that are kind, but that are fun and that are good at what they do. Um, you know, I I only know what I know. And and you only know what you know. But a lot of us, some of us don't know too much. But I know what I know and if I and I am more than happy. Um, to reach out when I don't know something like I think that's what it's about. So I look for for folks who are just knowledgeable about, you know, What their portfolio is on the campaign people who are quick but people who like to have fun people who aren't rude about it all people who um, Are 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 in their lane and doing their job and handling their business The worst thing on a campaign is somebody that is in that has their hand in four or five different pots that they don't own a pot that they were not assigned to and the one pot that they do own is raggedy and there's no water in the pot so <laughs> i just i i really value colleagues who um do their jobs and just do them really well and yeah. i think that's what makes a good i mean that that's that's what makes a good campaign like if we are all doing our jobs and doing them very well we are adequately serving the vice president but yeah when we're not doing that we're doing him a disservice and at the end of the day we're here to we're here to be good soldiers and we're here to help get him over the finish line. We can't do that if we're not adequately doing our jobs.
0: Yeah. You know, your book is also beautiful because you talk about some things that are painful and specifically, um, there are multiple times when heading into a campaign event, uh, you were stopped, uh, by people who didn't know, you didn't know the role you played really all they saw was an African-American woman. And in that, in their minds. That couldn't equate to senior advisor who you know, was needed by the candidate backstage. Um, you know, African-Americans who succeed, I think anyone who has any bit of clear vision will recognize they're doing so with a boulder on their back of this prism. So when you encounter moments like that, how do you cope? You know, like literally, how do you deal with that? and? What do you say to other staffers who are people of color, who are perhaps sick and tired of carrying that weight, but want some of the same things and same experiences um, that you're having?
1: Um, so I will, tell, I will tell you what Donna Brazil told me once. So I will say I have not, since I've been on the campaign trail this go around, I don't think I've ever experienced trying to go somewhere and, they, and I could not get in because they would not allow me access to the building. And that's partly because I have a level of privilege now, right? Because I, I spent three years um, on cable television uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. And so I have a, a, a recognizable face. If, if anything, people are like, oh, that's that Black girl that works for Joe Biden. Or that's that Black girl that used to be on CNN. So um, I, I have a level of privilege because people people know who I am because of something that I previously did before. But in p- 2015, that level of privilege for me didn't exist. And I became extremely, extremely frustrated um, with the not just like not being able to get in because, you know, fine, like, unfortunately, like that happens. Um, but the thing that brought, the straw that brought the camels back for me was, I was um, I was being asked to go and do like um, media, like, quote, they were calling quote, unquote, specialty media in like Brooklyn and Harlem and then I was getting requests for um like MSNBC and CNN and CBS and no one was telling me about those and they were diverting them to other people and I was just kind of like I'm good enough to go do like you know go talk to black media in Harlem but I'm not good enough to you know to talk to the CBS reporter it's kind of messed up so I got very frustrated one day and I called Donna Brazil. and I uh, after I complained and did all my hoo and han. Uh, Donna Brazil said to me she said well you know what maybe this isn't the job for you and I said what (laughs) she said maybe this is not the job for you maybe if you're having such a tough time perhaps perhaps this isn't what you really want to do and I got very offended and I hung up the phone and I could not understand why she would say that to me after I had just demonstrated I had such a hard time and I just want to go to work and oh my goodness I am just, I just want to go to work. And I do understand I'm black, but I just want to do my job. These are the things I was saying to Donna. And I call her back and we have another conversation. And went, and and she said to me, she said, you know, racism, ageism, sexism, all the isms, um, they are not going away tomorrow. And it was such a point, like it was like, that's something I will just never forget because she's right. They're not going away tomorrow. We have to call them out when we see it. We have to work every day to beat it back and to erase it, but we also, unfortunately, have to figure out how to navigate through it. And I think that that is what I will say to any you know person of color, or frankly, any woman that is experiencing you know uh, the sexism in the office, any young person, maybe it's ageism that they're experiencing. The isms aren't going away tomorrow. So yes, we have to call them out. Yes, we have to fight fight them. Yes, we have to to work to eradicate it. But we also have to figure out how to but. Ab- through it all, still navigating to our jobs. So that is like like that is what I always remember. Because if every time I experienced uh, an ism on the campaign trail, racism, for example, I shut down, I didn't do my job, like it it doesn't it it not gonna work, it wouldn't work out the same way for me. I'll tell you this, I don't do I tell the story in the book? I do tell the story in the book. So, literally. In at the height of 2016, it was January 2016. I'm with Senator Sanders. We're outside in the northeastern part of the United States of America. He's addressing the overflow crowd. I literally just introduced him on the microphone to the overflow crowd. I'm standing outside with my colleagues. Um, We're waiting on him to finish so we can go inside and do our actual event. Senator Sanders comes off stage. We're all standing there in a group talking, and then we start walking um, back into inside the venue. It is Myself, our trip director, who was a tall, who was a tall African-American man named Paul at the time, like uh, Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders, his body man, like another a senior aide, and then maybe one other person. And we're walking. I'm literally walking right in front of Senator Sanders. Like we're together. A state trooper is, I hear a state trooper yelling. I didn't know a state trooper at the time, but I hear somebody yelling, man, move, move to the side, man, move. I'm like, ooh, we that lady better move. What is going on? Man, move man, move to the side, man, move. Next thing I know, the state trooper is running up and he has two hands on me and he is pulling me out of the, literally the group, the entourage, pulling me out of the entourage. I'm sorry, what the hell? Paul grabs me and throws his arm across me and says, excuse me, do we have a problem? This is the national press secretary. First of all, we shouldn't have had to qualify who I was. The fact that I was standing there, with the Senator, like, obviously I belong. I shouldn't have to give you a qualifier of, of what it is that I do to make you feel as though I belong. Like, I don't need to, I shouldn't have to justify what I was doing there. But we did. This is a national press secretary. The state trooper lets me go and says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And I look him dead in the face. And I said, oh, because the black woman couldn't have been with Bernie Sanders? And the Senator and everybody else are standing right there. They're right behind us. They were there. We were maybe like five feet apart. No one says anything except Paul. Now, do I think that, um, you know, that they thought the state trooper was in the right? No, they obviously all felt he was in the wrong. They were frozen. So Paul just says, you know, state trooper goes away. Paul says, what are we going to do now? I was like, we got work to do. He said, yes, we do. Let's go. We walk into the building. And I'm like, come on, everybody. And we all go inside. No one ever spoke another word about what happened that day. And frankly, I think if I were if I were to retell the story to the senator or to Jeff or any, they might not even remember. But it is seared into my brain because of the way that it made me feel when it happened. But I had two options: I could either shut down and then like make it a whole thing uh, every single like for the rest of the day about like what happened and why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you say anything? This is da 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 da. Or I could I ad- address it in the moment and then I move on and I do my job. But i will never forget I will never forget that that happened to me. there are multiple there and i mean unfortunately i have I have a hundred different instances that I can point to like this but the difference the difference is like you know that that instance of 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 racism okay does not define me, and I'm not going to let you know the isms keep me from doing my job and the fact that I can navigate through it allows me. To allows me to uh has frankly it allowed me a larger platform to be able to call it out and address it.
0: you know that the story uh, so well told here by you, also searing in the book um i which I can't recommend enough. No, you shut up. people should read the book. It's got so much in it that is meaningful, important, interesting. You just touched upon something that I, I, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on, in your book, you make the distinction between an ally and an accomplice. Mm -hmm. And you say, I'm looking for- I don't want any more allies. That's right, you say, I'm looking for accomplices. What makes a good accomplice?
1: Good accomplices, and to be clear, I I say, you know, uh, because allies are over there talking about they're standing in solidarity, but the allies have an alibi when it all goes down. An accomplice goes down with you, an accomplice is, right there with you in the trenches every single step of the way. And I think what makes a good accomplice um, is someone that is, you know, I lay out these themes about who's willing to take risks with you, who's willing to stand in the gap, um, speak up for folks that may not be in the room, but also a good accomplice knows when to cede the ground to someone else. We talk a lot about um, the voices of young people, for example. I'm like, yes, I'm like, I'm 30, but I'm a young person. But to be clear, there are people younger than me. And so, on some level, I need to move and allow space for like act. I don't want to call them actual young people, but you know, the youngest young people to speak up. Like, we can't continue to speak for young people. We need to allow young people to speak for themselves. That goes. That that's, that's the same for women. That's the same for people of color. So, I think what makes a good accomplice part of it is really knowing when to when to move out of the way so you can elevate those other voices in various places and spaces, but accomplices are literally with you in the trenches. And I want people who are in the trenches with me on this work. That's what we need.
0: So I have a couple of uh, questions that I like to ask all of my guests. Uh, One of them is called Staffer Hall of Fame. If I were to build a building uh, dedicated to staffers who've worked in government or politics and are the best in class, who would you nominate for? the Staffer Hall of Fame?
1: Who would I nominate for the Staffer Hall of Fame? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Like, the people that I work with now or, like...
0: It could be anybody, anyone from your experience, and it could be at any level.
1: I would nominate a couple people. I would definitely nominate Anita Dunn, okay? I would nominate uh, all of the colored girls, O'Donnell Brazil, Mignon Moore, Yolanda Carraway, Reverend Leah Daughtry. Um, But then I would also have to nominate... My badass colleagues, specifically the ones in which who hopped on the stage on Super Tuesday when the dairy folks tried to interrupt the vice president's um, <laughs> speech, and the my my fellow female staffers that moved folks out of the way. So that was myself, uh, our traveling chief of staff Annie Tomasini, uh Ashley Williams, our trip director, our dep- our uh, uh, traveling press secretary rumi Yamamoto, our deputy, one of our deputy communications directors, Megan Hay.
0: I love that Um, all of those nominees are outstanding. And that moment that you um, that you referenced there was a national moment. I mean, right. I mean, you were that that moment was covered very broadly. It was so crazy. Um, Oh, crazy, but also heroic. I mean, truly, I mean, just instinctually, you did something that probably has gone through a lot of staffers minds. I think anybody who has worked in politics uh, close to a candidate has thought on occasion. What would I do if things went really south? Um, but you didn't have time to like think it through; you reacted, um, and it was just so impressive to watch. Here's another one of my favorite questions, however, which is I call it in the vault. Um, tell me about a time when you really screwed up, and what did you uh, do to recover, and what did you learn from it?
1: Mm, mm. I the time a time that I really really screwed up. Was I will never forget this. It was while I worked for Senator Sanders. It was in the aftermath of um, you know the the Freddie Gray's. Uh, he died in police custody um, in Baltimore, and so we had the idea of Senator Sanders going and doing a walking tour. This was like it was definitely beginning in twenty sixteen, doing a walking tour in Baltimore in Freddie Gray's neighborhood with like all these pastors from the neighborhood. And then he would go and do a round table with like these faith leaders and community leaders um, after the walking tour. The Secret Service hated me because they were like, what do you mean we're going to just go outside with like 30 people and all these cameras? But it was amazing. It was like my best press moment. But I will say we go and do the round table and the round table was closed press. We had a press conference planned afterwards. So we've got about mm, 40 reporters, all these people that were literally just with us outside waiting in a, in a, in a room for a press conference. So I go and I go to pre-brief the reporters, and I'm really feeling myself that day because we had a good day. And I go in and I'm telling them these are the kinds of things that they talked about in the meeting. This is, um, this is, you know, these are some of the these are the people that are going to speak for the pastors, and then the, and then Senator Sanders will speak, and then these are some of the topics. Are there any questions? And people ask a couple questions and then I get a little snarky. Okay, so then I tell the reporters, I say, and guys, we're in Baltimore today talking about, you know, the issues in Baltimore, but that are mirrored in many cities across this country. So can y'all try to ask about Baltimore and not, you know, and not ISIS? And I literally say that. And I'm like, any other questions? And nobody says anything. And I walk away. I don't get down the hall. Before the reporters have tweeted and said, Senator Sanders' press secretary just told us not to ask about ISIS at this press conference today. Okay, well that's really not what I not what I said, but it was blowing up. So it was blowing up everywhere, blowing up everywhere. I'm mortified. The communications director is like, "What did you do?" I'm like, "That's not what I said." We go into the press conference, and I am just like, I am, I am, I'm just like fuming, and like so, I'm scared in the background. I'm standing in the corner because I'm like, the Q&A is going to come. They're going to, the first question is going to be, your press secretary told us not to ask you about ISIS today. What's What's that about? Are you, are you scared of talking about ISIS? And it's a problem because ISIS had really been, like, it had been in the news. And the narrative currently that week of the campaign was like, oh, Senator Sanders doesn't have deep foreign policy chops and doesn't want to talk foreign policy, even though the day before, he did a 20-minute gaggle on ISIS. I know I was there. I recorded it on my phone. So it was just a, it was really bad. And I was mortified and I was crying, but I was in this corner like, I'm about to get in trouble. And the quest, Q&A comes, he's like, any questions? And the first question, Senator Sanders, your press secretary told us today not to ask you about ISIS. Is there a reason you don't wanna talk about ISIS? And I just, literally it's the first freaking question. And I just slink out of the back door of the room that we were in. And I'm like, he's about to run this bus right over my whole body. And Senator Sanders he paused and he says, well, I don't have a problem talking about ISIS, but we're in Baltimore today. And then he goes into saying exactly what I said to the reporters. I was like, oh, but I'm very mortified, though, because Bernie is not pleased. Communications director is not pleased. Everybody's mad. Um, and I'm like crying. I'm like, I didn't know you were in there, man. It's just terrible. So uh, Senator Sanders says nothing else to me that day. I'm like, he is very not pleased. But the next day we're in the campaign office and he comes in and he's like, what have Oh, well, the next day. Oh, mind you, by the way, that little, the, the we have headlines then for the next 24 hours about how the campaign said he didn't want to talk about ISIS. ISIS, ISIS, ISIS. Like they do, the NPR does like a 5 p.m. the next day, like on their drive time show about how I said he didn't want to talk about ISIS. Like it is just very embarrassing. Okay. They dragged me. Um, I've actually been dragged worse now since then, but that was my first really like public political dragging by the press. And so two days later, it wasn't the next day, it was the day after that, Senator Sanders comes from campaign office and he's like, well, and I was like, hello, sir, I'm so sorry. It was like, well, uh, I think you learned your lesson. I said, I did learn my lesson, so I do not have any jokes for the reporters. No jokes, it's not funny, I have no jokes. No jokes. It's like, oh, no, okay. Uh, you know? this
0: is why this is why so many people find talking to reporters terrifying.
1: Absolutely terrifying. Okay, <laughs> And I and, you know, I know the people that led the charge on this. She said you didn't want to talk about ISIS. And they are in my book. OK, they are in my little personal. Right. book In my memories, into my memory. Mm-mm, I, That's I will right. never forget. I know these reporters that led the charge. And you know who you are if you're listening.
0: Simone, uh, you've also hosted a podcast, so I'm going to leave the last question for you. Um, Is there something that our listeners should know that I didn't ask about?
1: So I just think, what should our listeners know that they didn't ask about? Um, I think you should know that I am a young person like all the other young staffers out there you know i'm somebody that you know still wants to figure out how i'm going to brunch how i'm going to make time for my friends and my partner uh how i'm going to pay my bills where i'm going to live so like at, at, it doesn't get the, those things and the balancing of like your job and all your personal things it, it it's not any easier for me than it is in any of the rest of you in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic but i will just say that at the end of the day for me it's all about um making sure I'm having fun in what I'm doing and that I'm being true to myself and that I am holding true to my values. And if I can check all those boxes and going to take a job or take on a project or, or do something, then I'm going to absolutely do it.
0: That is a great note to end this episode of Staffer on. Uh, Simone, thank you so much for making time for us today. We know you've got really important things to do over the next 89 days and, and hopefully beyond. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I will be chatting with you all
0: soon. Well, friends. The clock's just buzzed four times and the Marine sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.